0: Where can we go to meet God? And people who are uh, inclined to ponder that question might answer it incorrectly in one of two ways. Um, One way that someone might answer it incorrectly would be to think, I can only meet God at the church building. Growing up in the Roman church, that was my understanding, that I understood that God was omnipresent, but that God was really kind of especially present in this house that was built for him. That's where he was, and if I wanted to meet with God, uh, I would go there sometimes by myself to pray, but that's where God could be found, at the church building. Another way that that question might be answered incorrectly is to think that because God is omnipresent, I can meet with him anywhere. And uh, to think that would be to confuse presence with access. Um, You know, unless he's uh, traveling somewhere else in the country or uh, traveling somewhere else in the world, the President of the United States resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I could go there and he would be present, but I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have access to him if I went there. I want to read to you today uh, from John's Gospel, Chapter 2, and just remind you that uh, last week we had seen that Jesus had gone into the temple during the time of the Passover and when he went in he found in the temple courts there those who were selling animals for the sacrifice and uh, there were money changers there who were uh, changing money for the uh, purpose of paying the temple tax with the appropriate coinage and uh, and Jesus drives them out of the temple. He says this isn't the place to be doing this. And uh, We're told that the Jews demanded of him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And so today I want to read to you from uh, John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. This is God's word. The Jews demanded of him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Father, we pray today that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would believe the scriptures, and the words that Jesus has spoken, and that, Father, through him we would have access to you and be blessed in your presence as we are provoked to bless and praise your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Where can we go to meet God? The people of Jesus' day would have told you, well, the temple, that's where we go to meet God. And they would have good reason to say that. Uh, When Israel was brought out of Egypt in the Exodus and was wandering in the desert, God gave them instructions to make a tabernacle and provided for them to do that. What's a, a tabernacle? It's kind of like a portable temple. And there God made his presence known, uh, made his presence to dwell so that the people of God could meet with him there. And under King Solomon, God allowed Solomon to build a permanent dwelling place on Mount Moriah, well as permanent as any earthly structure can be. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC when they uh, carried the people off into captivity. But some 70 years later, under Cyrus, king of Persia, people returned and they began to rebuild that temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. And, you know, if you look at the scriptures when it speaks about that, you'll see that those who were there who remember the original temple, Solomon's temple and the building of the second temple, that they wept and mourned over what they saw because it didn't have the glory of the former temple. But when King Herod had come to power, uh, he began to, rebuild that temple, build upon that second temple with a magnificence that no one had seen. It was impressively glorious. And it was the courts of that temple that Jesus cleared of the cattle sellers and the money changers. And at the time that he does this, Jesus is beginning to be known as a new rabbi. He's only about 30 years old, and he began to gain a following, but, but he was new on the scene. And so we're told that the Jews demanded to know from him what sign he might provide to show his authority to do such a thing. I want to point out something to you about uh, the Gospel of John, because you'll see uh, that um, description throughout his Gospel, that Uh, The Jews demanded of him a sign that the Jews replied. When John says that, he's not speaking about Jews in distinction from Gentiles. Jesus is a Jew. John, who's writing this gospel, is a Jew. All the disciples are Jews. The entirety of the early church, at least at first, are all Jews. And When John uses this word, the Jews, he's speaking particularly of the leaders of Judaism the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it's they who demand of Jesus a sign to prove that he has the authority to do such a thing. And in response to that, Jesus points them to a parable. And he says this to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, those who questioned him didn't understand the parable. Uh, They said, it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple, and it still wasn't completely finished, but it was usable. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? And uh, we see that even the disciples didn't understand what he was referring to until after his resurrection. But throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus often spoke in parables. In fact, we're told in Matthew 13 that there would come a time when Jesus wouldn't speak in public any other way. The only time uh, he would speak to the crowds was in a parable. Why is it that Jesus spoke in parables? You know, sometimes um, I've, I've heard the explanation that A parable is an explanation, it's an illustration to show the truth of something. I don't doubt that parables can at times illustrate, but I don't think that's quite right to define a parable uh, as an illustration, because in fact, the word that we translate parable is translated uh, elsewhere as riddle. In in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 15, we read that the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever uh, hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. And they've closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And so what Jesus tells us is that those who know and have a disposition of trust toward Jesus will hear and will understand what he has to say, if not right away, eventually. That's what happened with the disciples, right? Does it ever happen to you that you read your Bible and you think, I don't know what God is talking about here? Okay, I see some nods, heads nodding. I'm glad for that. I wanted to be sure that I wasn't the only one to whom that happened, right? Um, the question is, when we come to something that we don't understand in the scriptures, how do we respond to that? Do we make ourselves the measure of what's right and wrong and say, Gee, you know, I can't, I can't really quite fathom what God is trying to say here, Um, so it must not be true. I'm the measure of what's right, wrong, true, false. If I don't really understand it, then it can't be true. Or do we come with a disposition of trust and say, I don't really understand this, but I'm going to cling to him anyway? You know, you see that time and time again throughout the Gospels. Jesus' disciples um, will have Jesus say something to them they're, they're puzzled, they're perplexed, but they continue to hold on to him. Those who know and trust Jesus will hear and understand what he has to say, if not right away, eventually, because they come to him with a disposition of trust. But those who are ill-inclined toward Jesus will always hear nonsense in what he has to say. They have a disposition of distrust. That's just the way people are. If you have a, a disposition of distrust to a certain person, Whatever that person says, no matter how sound it might be, is going to sound like nonsense to you because you listen to them with a disposition of distrust. And so the purpose of the parables that Jesus tells, listen carefully to this, the purpose of his parables is not to illustrate, although they may illustrate, but the purpose of his parables is not to illustrate, but it's to winnow. It's to separate wheat from chaff. Um, you know what winnowing is, right? In the ancient world, they would, they would harvest the wheat uh, and they'd have the kernels, the edible uh, parts of the kernels. But, the, but the, the chaff that was around it, which was inedible, they would take a fork and they would uh, toss that into the air and the, and the wind would carry off the chaff, and the wheat would fall back to the ground. And the parables that Jesus tells are a, a process of winnowing. Now, winnowing takes time. And, you know, in, in John's gospel, throughout this gospel, we're going to meet people who are called disciples. We're going to meet people of whom it is said they believed in his name, who in the end turn from Jesus and will no longer follow him. Then we'll see those who are faithful to the end, sometimes shaky in their faith at first, sometimes who at first lack understanding, but who end up being unshakably established. And we see that with the disciples, they didn't understand what he was talking about, but we're told after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And it's a significant thing to note with the same actions and the same words, God shows himself and confirms the faith of those who come to him in faith and with the same actions and the same words, God hides himself from those who come to him either with a disposition of distrust or come to him in an apparent faith but with an ulterior motive. And throughout the Gospels we see various ulterior motives come to him seeking wealth or come to him seeking political power. We think that we'll gain political power if we come to Jesus. But Jesus points them and us to a parable, and it's important that we don't miss the parable and its meaning. We're told here that Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. Did you get that? Do you see what the parable is? It's not that Jesus' body is like the temple and is a parable of the temple. It's rather that The temple is a parable of Jesus' body. The temple and the tabernacle before it was where God met with human beings. But the temple was never the thing in itself. It's always been a parable, just as the sacrifice of the animals that took place there were never a thing in itself, an end in itself, but were always a parable, a sign pointing to something, or better, someone beyond itself. You know, in uh, recent times, boy, you almost uh, you, you you almost can't avoid it if you. Uh, turn on the radio or turn on the television and hear any kind of religious program, religious broadcasting, um, and I hear people say um, things like this: God's plan cannot progress until the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt. Have you ever have you ever heard that? That the idea there is that you know on the uh, on, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the Dome of the Rock. There now a mosque, and um, as they look at the prophets, they say, "Well, for." for for God to do the next installment of his plan here. Uh, the temple has to be rebuilt. Sacrifices have to be uh, offered there again. And so God's not going to be able to progress with his plan until that temple is rebuilt. I've got to tell you that when it comes to looking at the future, I have no crystal ball. I cannot tell you whether that temple will ever be rebuilt or not. But I do know that whether it's rebuilt or not has no effect on the unfolding of what God is doing. Because the fact is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the temple has been rebuilt. That's what Jesus has just told us. In the incarnation, the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the the word that John uses to describe it. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that the temple is the body of Jesus raised three days after his crucifixion. Jesus' body is not a parable of the temple. The temple is a parable of Jesus' body. It was the promise, he is the fulfillment. It was the shadow, he is the substance. It was temporary, he is eternal. In Revelation chapter 21, John has a vision that the same John who wrote this gospel has a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, uh, coming down out of heaven to earth. And he hears a voice saying, now is the dwelling of God with mankind. He himself will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And later in that chapter, in verse 22, John says this. And I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Christ is the boundary of the temple. And in him, there are no boundaries. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria, one of our elders mentioned it today, in the opening of the service that a time was coming and now is when it wouldn't matter whether we worshipped in Jerusalem or Samaria, that that wouldn't be the issue. And yet there are two mistakes that people make about where they can go to meet God. Um, They may think that God is present in the church building in the way that he was present in the temple. And the church building is where you go to meet God. But the other mistake that people make is to think that because God is omnipresent, I can meet God anywhere, and that is to confuse presence with access. Christ, in his incarnation, in his death and resurrection, in his ascension and glory, is the only place where we can meet God. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christ in his body is the temple, the meeting place of God and man. So in order to answer that question, where can we go to meet God, we, we have to ask another question. And that is, where do we find the body of Christ? I do not think it is a coincidence that the Bible identifies two things so closely with Christ's body that it actually calls them by that phrase. And the first is the church, not the, not the building, not the place where the church meets, but the saints called out of the world, being brought together, who remain united to one another, even when they're scattered. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ. Uh, An idea that's echoed in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 and chapter 5. You are the body of Christ. And Paul writes to the uh, church of the Colossians in Colossians 1.27. He speaks to that church there of Christ In you, the hope of glory. Uh, You know, we might miss this in our English translations. When Paul says Christ in you, he doesn't mean in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you individually. The you there is plural. Christ in you, the church of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. And so the the first place that we find this thing identified so closely with Christ's body that it's actually called by that phrase is the church. Christ is present with and in his church, and we have access to him here. We, We deceive ourselves, brothers and sisters, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we have access to Christ if we regularly neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Now, having mentioned that or having said that, let me uh, just speak a word here, particularly to those who are live streaming with us. Some of you are live streaming with us because of health reasons or health concerns, but are a part of the body here, and that's perfectly understandable. And God's a merciful God. Um, But there may be some people who've never been to Bethel Church who just join us uh, week by week uh, via live stream because it's convenient or because it's easy. It would be a mistake for you to think that that is somehow some substitute with gathering with the people of God. Christ is found in his church. It's the body of Christ. Christ. The second thing that the Bible identifies so closely with the body of Christ that it speaks of it with that phrase is the Lord's Supper. Um, It's not that the bread and wine transubstantiate into the physical body and blood of Christ, but it's that the incarnate, crucified, risen, glorified Christ is present for blessing to faith in the observance of the supper. We read in Mark 14, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. The Apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Which is for you. The purpose of the temple was the meeting place between God and man. But, but that temple in Jerusalem was never anything other than a parable. And the Son of God, in his humanity, in his body, is the true temple torn down by man, rebuilt by God in three days where we may meet God. And our only hope of encountering God, of meeting God, is in the temple, in the true temple, in Jesus Christ. And Where do we find Christ? We find him present in his body, the church. And we find him present in the supper. There to bless us when we eat in faith. Christ is the boundary of the temple. And in him there are no boundaries. As we uh, prepare to receive, to participate in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask maybe our elders can help with this to dismiss people uh, row by row to come up and, and take the elements, come up the center aisle, and uh, and return uh, down through the uh, uh, sides. If you have difficulty with mobility, uh, please uh, let them know that, and our elders will be glad to bring you the elements. And uh Mrs. Baker, maybe you can pe- play a meditation and we'll pass the elements out first before I give the words of institution. So if you just begin to have people come up and receive the elements.